Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, thanks, Paul, and it's been a joy to get to know you a little bit. And uh, hopefully, uh, after today, you still want to get to know me. Um, it is uh, a privilege to stand here today and open God's Word with you a little bit. You can take your copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Um, as you do, let me just tell you, uh, so every ethne is the North American team of ABWE. So ABWE is a global mission sending agency, and we send missionaries all over the world, including here in North America. Um, uh, we have about 1,000 missionaries in about 70 countries, been around about 95 years. About 10 years ago, they said, you know what, we don't really do anything in North America. This is kind of interesting. And so we kind of, d- they devised a plan and strategy, and every ethne was born. And so every ethne, our, uh, really our, our vision, our mission is to just simply be on mission with the local church. And we want to mobilize the local church to do three things in North America. First is that we want to help local churches multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. So we want to see churches reproduce and plant churches. The second thing is we want to see local churches. Um, uh, uh, what is the second one? No, I'm just kidding. Reach the people groups of North America. We really do. We want to see that God has brought the world here. I'll share a little bit more later on about that as well. And, and really the third thing that we want to do is we want to see, lo- see local church that help mobilize local churches to send healthy missionaries. And uh, we believe that God is still calling people to give their lives to the mission of Christ here and around the world. Amen? So that's kind of what we do. I'll kind of share a little bit more um, through some of the stuff as we kind of make our way through Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 this morning. Um, but hey, I got to share some exciting news for you. My oldest son is getting married in two weeks. Two weeks from today. It's incredible. Um, we're excited for him. We're blessed to be able to have a, uh, a new daughter join our family. As we get closer to that event, it has given us lots of time um, as a family and myself to think about him and how the Lord has been so good to us um, as parents, how the Lord has been good despite of how inept we are as raising kids, right? Maybe if you have kids, you understand this. Um, We all have regrets as parents. There's no doubt. It's easier to remember the bad moments of parenting than it is to remember the good ones. We look back to the goodness of the Lord um, despite us, not because of us. We can be honest that being a 26-year-old with a new baby, a new boy, uh, exposes the heart in a lot of ways, right? Let me explain one example for you. When he was um, just under two years old, my oldest son, Karsten, my wife and I did the whole, well, we're not going to give him any bad food to eat. No bad drinks, right? Well, at least this was her rule. <clears throat> Especially any pot. That was her thing, right? And, uh, well, being the fun dad that I was and how much I really loved Mountain Dew at the time, it was fun for me every now and then to give him a little sip of Mountain Dew, right? Big spoiler alert, he loved it. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, now, after, every time I would give him a little drink, I would sit there and say, now, Karsten, don't tell mommy. Okay. Well, the day came <laughs> when we're eating dinner, I think it was after church on a Sunday, and I had my Mountain Dew in front of me, and he was looking at me like, please, please, please. And my wife looks over, and I'm like, come on, hon, just one time. And so she's like, okay, just one little sip. And so I give it to him. He takes it, and he lets out this big, ah. 
And then he looks at me and he goes, Daddy, don't tell mommy. <laughs> yeah, true story. <laughs> Be careful. Our actions in life always get exposed at some point, don't they? What we do eventually displays what we believe. Now, this may be a minor illustration of it, but what happens when the actions that we live actually fall much further away from the words that we say we believe? What happens when we live a life that contradicts the truth that we say that we embrace? Well, Philippians chapter one, if you want kind of a big idea of what we're going to talk about this morning before we read the text, is simply this, is that as followers of Jesus, our life should reflect the gospel we believe. Let me say that again. As followers of Jesus, our life should reflect the gospel we say we believe. Uh, just let me read the text for you and we'll kind of jump in and show you kind of what we mean by this. Uh, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. As followers of Jesus, our life should reflect the gospel we believe. This is what Paul is saying here at the end of chapter one in the book of Philippians. Let me give you some context here. The book is written by the apostle Paul. It's, about, it's written about 10 years after he went in and planted the church on his second missionary journey. Take some time at some point to read Acts chapter 16 and you'll understand some of the remarkable events that took place in the planting of this church. Now, fast forward 10 years and what we see is that Paul Paul is in prison and writes a very, very personal letter to a group of people that he deeply loved. In fact, let your eyes just glance back to the beginning of chapter one as Paul even describes his relationship in verse three. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's like Paul is saying, like, every time I go to pray, and I think of you guys, like I just get a big smile on my face. Like we've been partners in the gospel from the first day until nine, and you just bring me so much joy in my life. Verse seven, glance down there, he says, um, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He loves these people deeply in deep ways that's grounded in the gospel. And he knows that they love him as well. That's why in verses 12 through 18, Paul reassures them that like, listen, I'm in prison, but you have to understand that my imprisonment has actually turned out to advance the gospel, not to hinder the gospel. Then verses 19 to 26, he drops this real kind of uh, uh, theological truth bomb to them that he says to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. Well, what he means is that to live your life as a follower of Jesus means pursuing Jesus. And I think in the context, serving other people like Jesus would. And then when you die, guess what? You get what was the pursuit of your life. Christ. That's the only way death is gain. You get what you treasured throughout the life. That brings us then into verse 27 when Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is not difficult to understand, okay? This is not really hard to grasp. There's one thing, only this, Paul says, only this, I want you to understand that this is really this umbrella of his desire for them. This one thing alone, picking up on verse 21, I think Paul is saying that to live as Christ means this, orient your life. Take the appropriate steps. There's an appropriate manner in which you live your life in which the gospel should impact everything that you do. He wants them, and I think conversely us today, to align the way that we live with the worthiness of the gospel. And so just so that we're on clear terms here, what Paul does not mean is that we need to work harder and harder to make God prouder of us and therefore get the gospel. No. What he is saying is that since the gospel has already taken root in your life, since we are partners in the gospel in verse 5, since, uh, since that we're both partakers of grace in verse 7, since our confidence is that the one who started it is going to be the one who's going to finish it in verse 6, then make certain, be really diligent that your life matches the gospel of Christ. Now, there's an interesting play on words he does here in verse 27. He uses this word for city or really citizen when he says, let your manner of life be worthy. He's saying you need to live like an appropriate citizen. Now, what kind of citizen does he mean? Well, he's talking in the context as a citizen of the gospel. He gets really more specific in chapter three when he says that uh, our citizenship is where? Heaven, right? And from it, we await our savior. So he's saying, I know that you're a citizen of Rome, or let's be more specific. I know you may be a citizen of the United States, but there's a greater citizenship in which you're called to live. One where the gospel infiltrates all of your actions. It's one in which the message of Jesus on the cross, the message of an empty tomb, changes us from the inside out and we live differently than those who do not believe the gospel. Um, in my role as with ABWE as the executive director of our North American team, every ethnic, I get to do a lot of training at churches. Uh, particularly on the, the, on the issue of evangelism and how to kind of live the mission that Christ has for us. Primarily our goal is to help followers of Jesus understand that when Jesus ascended into heaven, right, in Acts chapter 1, and before that in Matthew chapter 28 when he gives this great commission, he was giving it to all the followers of Christ. It isn't just a, a general statement to the church, that we are all called, if you're a follower of Jesus, to be on a mission to make disciples. 
We want to help people do this effectively. We want to help people do this boldly. Do you want to know what the secret sauce of some of our training is? Get ready for this. Hang on, I'm like I'm pulling the curtain back a little bit here. Here it is. Ready? The boils down to this. Act like a Christian. <laughs> I'm not joking. So the problem is, I'm not saying act like a social Christian in the sense of like, well, we're Christian, we're not Muslim, or we're not atheist. Act like someone who is, is actually a follower of Jesus Christ. Cultural Christianity has defamed the name of Jesus, and I see it all the time as I travel around and I get to speak and meet pastors across North America. I had hoped that really COVID would have kind of parted the way and killed kind of this cultural Christianity sort of thing, but unfortunately people have found an easier box to check by church by sitting in their pajamas and watching it from their couch. See, if you want to be a faithful evangelist, then simply live like someone who loves Jesus. Talk like a follower of Jesus. Work your job in such a way that everyone knows that the one who gave his life for you has made a difference in everything about your life. Compete in your athletics as someone who has been shaped by the gospel of Christ. And so he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is not something we do just when we show up and turn the light switch on when we show up at church. It's everything across the board. The real you is not just when you show up here and it's in public sight but when you're not seen. I think that's why maybe Paul says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent. He's like, it doesn't matter if I come show up, but like I'm in prison, I know, I want to come visit you, I love you, I care for you, I know you care for me, but I may come in here. But, but it doesn't matter if I come and see you or if I remain absent, I want to hear from you that. I want to hear from you. What Paul wants to hear? How do we know if we're living the gospel? How do we know if our life reflects the gospel we say we believe? Well, Paul here, I think, in verses, the end of verse 27 through the end of verse 30, he gives us really two signs of a life worthy of the gospel. And certainly there's going to be others. I mean, we can, we can search throughout the scriptures. There's other evidences throughout the, what the Bible says of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. Certainly we see issues of holiness that come out, right? We, we see purity. We see, we see forgiveness. We see how, how the fruit of the Spirit is displayed in our life when we're walking by the Spirit. There are many different signs, but here in the text, Paul shares just two of them. Shares two, two indications that your life that you're living is reflecting the gospel that you say you believe. Let me give uh, them to you quickly. First one is this, that you have a life that's pursuing unity. That you have a life that's pursuing unity. This is what Paul wants to hear from them. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, verse 27, I may hear of you that you are, are you ready for this? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Another way to say it is this, is that you're pursuing unity in the gospel. That's what he's saying. Now, some have argued that the one spirit, standing firm in one spirit here, is referring to the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and in some way that's true. We know that when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ um, for their salvation, the Spirit of God is given as a pledge of their salvation. As Jesus said, the Spirit would not just be with his followers, but would be in them, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, talk about this one Spirit and one body, the unity that happens, that the Spirit of God unites all believers. Um, I'll share more about this uh, later here, but uh, I spent all Thursday and Friday um, doing interviews with believers from one of the most unreached people groups in the world. We, 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 we do not speak the same language. Uh, we needed translators. There are more things that are different about us than are similar to us, but the Spirit of God unites us as one, and it was felt in the interviews. So this is very true, but I'm not sure that that's the type of unity Paul is talking about here. It makes the most sense as you read the context here that what he means when he says one spirit, he's talking about it's modified by you're of one mind, that you are striving side by side. He's referring to the, um, the practical elements of unity in the body of Christ. And the unity that he's referring to is far beyond, well, are we just getting along together, right? It's more about, are you with each other for the cause of the gospel? Are you living a unified life for the faith of the gospel? Um, this book is written in the context of a local church. It's written to a local body of believers, the church at Philippi, one church in one city. It certainly applies as you look around this room today, like you look around and say, as a church here at Cornerstone in Mayfield, are we with each other? Are we unified with each other for the gospel? There may be greater implications than just the local body, but maybe the body of Christ in Cleveland and beyond, but, but let's just stay here and focus here. Here is the life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ready? It is a follower of Jesus who is on the same page and working together with other followers of Jesus for the faith of the gospel. It's a church where the people are unified with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel together. How does that happen? Well, let me suggest a couple possible ways in which this might practically outflow in the life of a local church, okay? First is this, is that we defend the gospel together. So there's certainly an aspect here, maybe this is what Paul means by standing firm, what he means by with one mind, it means that as a church, you're standing on the bedrock of the teaching of the gospel. It means that you're encouraging faithful proclamations of the gospel. It means, as I have no doubt, getting to know your pastors and knowing what they believe, that you take seriously the errors that, 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 that seem to creep into the gospel, right? It's a heart of, of discernment when it comes to truth and error in the gospel. And so together as a church, and this is probably led from your leadership, like we defend the gospel together. We want to make sure that it is right of what we're proclaiming to people. But secondly, I wonder if it's that we talk about the gospel together. That we talk about the gospel together. This is simple. Keep the message of Jesus 
before you in your conversations. Um, when we're doing some of our evangelism training stuff that we do, we talk a lot about having gospel conversations with unbelievers. Like to live the mission that Jesus has for us, it means talking about how the gospel has infiltrated our lives and just bringing that up in everyday conversations. To talk about the message of Jesus, how, how the message of Christ has impacted my life. Now, I have a theory on why this is so difficult for most Christians. This is just Thad's theory. I don't really know if it's true or not. But I wonder if it's so hard to have these sort of conversations with, with unbelievers because we never even have them with our fellow Christians. Like, we're going to get out today and we're going to talk more about, man, it rained a lot last night. And not necessarily about, man, how is the gospel changing me today? Like, the topic of the, of the gospel is not quick upon our tongues. I wonder what would happen if you got and we got into a regular rhythm of every single day of having at least one, maybe multiple conversations with our Christian friends trying to answer questions like, I don't know, how, how has Jesus made a difference in my life today? Um, what, what, what idols am I trying to root out of my life today? Like, where have I seen that battle taking place, right? How many, how has the gospel made a difference in how I am struggling and dealing with forgiveness today? Are there areas in my life today that I need to expose to the bright lights of the gospel of my Savior? And just being open and honest and having these sort of conversations with people on an everyday sort of basis. Because I'm thinking if we have these sort of conversations with people on a regular basis, I think it's partly what Paul means by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. However, I think the main way this is applied is third, is that we spread the gospel together. Like, we spread the gospel together. Jesus rarely sent people alone to take the message of the gospel to unbelievers. Jesus loved teams. He sent people in groups it would be helpful for us to remember we can defend it together. We can talk about it together. But our actions in life are probably not living up to the worthiness of the gospel if we're not spreading it together. Let's fully grasp that. Uh, D.A. Carson said this. He said, to put it bluntly, conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. That it takes the gospel to people that don't know. Um, one of the things that we get to do as uh, churches is we do these spiritual health surveys at churches. In about the last four years or so, we've had about 4,000 people from churches around North America take this survey. Um, and it really helps expose and I think enlighten like, of people. Like I think this is the best possible scenario of the people at church, churches like the really dedicated people of churches that actually end up taking the surveys and we get to sit down and coach and walk through with pastors and church leaders about 
about the health of their church and the people of the church. So we've had about 4,000 people, just over 50%, okay, just over 50% would have answered in a way that we deem is healthy or agreement of the statement that my Christ-centered friends help me love and engage the lost. Just over 50%. The number is a few percent higher when we talk about those who are in good discipleship relationships, meaning that they, they have said, I have someone in my life that's helping me follow Jesus at a closer level. That number raises about three or 4% higher. Meaning this, um, that we are, as a church, and I'm not saying your church, I'm just saying church collectively that we have been able to see in North America, that churches are more likely to help people like, mm, how are you walking with Jesus? And how are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? And how are you reading your Bible? And how are you praying? And like we talk about these things, but when it comes to walking side by side for the faith of the gospel and helping promote the gospel to people who don't know, this, we don't really, we don't venture into that camp as frequently. About four years ago when we started doing these surveys, these statistics concerned me until I looked at my own life and paid attention to my own experience. I, f- I feel like I've followed Christ closely since I was in uh, really my senior year of high school. And it's a relatively small number of times that I can remember a fellow Christian coming to me and ever asking me, Thad, how are you doing in sharing the gospel with unbelievers? How can I help you How can I help pray for you as you pursue unbelievers in your life? Very infrequently as it happened to me. Maybe for you it's different, I don't know, but my guess is it's probably fairly similar. That people aren't really walking with you. That churches aren't walking side by side for the faith of the gospel. And maybe, honestly, let's be real, maybe we don't ask because we don't want them to ask us. (laughs) Right? Um... I think this could be the key to developing healthy mission for all followers of Jesus at a church, walking side by side with each other for the faith of the gospel, praying with each other for the lost that are in our life, seeking accountability with each other for the faith of the gospel in our life. And if we want to pursue, we want to live a life worthy of the gospel, I think it starts with, a, with a, uh, a life that pursues unity in the gospel. There's a second sign, though, of a life worthy of the gospel. And it's It's a life that's fearless. It's a life that's fearless. Look at verse 28. Actually, the middle of verse 27, that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that, and he talks about standing firm in one spirit, right? And not, verse 28, and not frightened. It's like, I want to hear from you that you are not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Please, please note, don't miss the connection between the end of verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28. That one comes before the other what I mean by this is maybe being unified with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 
allows people to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Right? Why? Because I know I got people walking with me in this. Paul wants them to live a life that's in line with the gospel so that whether he comes and sees them or not, he hears of them that they're not frightened by anything that their opponents are doing. Um, In one of the trainings that we do, I usually start off by asking this question. So just mentally, just, just answer this question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word evangelism? And we'll spend a few minutes kind of talking back and forth. There's been about two or three times ever, I've done this a lot of times at churches, that I hear that someone will say, fear. No one ever says it. I can't believe it. So then at the end of it, we kind of do this group discussion. I'm like, hey, you know, it's kind of interesting. No one really said fear. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, 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 right? Like, it's almost like we're scared to admit that this, that there is something about taking the gospel to unbelievers that could possibly frighten us. Well, what are they? Well, certainly mockery. Maybe financial loss for you and your company. I don't know, hatred, without doubt, a lack of friendship. Some people in some countries, persecution, death. If we're honest with each other, we know we have not felt this like some of our brothers and sisters around the world who have had to develop a theology of suffering amidst the crucible of persecution. They get it. We need to get it because it's coming. We know that a lot of the current outrage at a worldview with the gospel and Jesus at the center, whether it's in topics of abortion or sexual identity issues or exclusivity of Christ or whatever, like many of those other issues, comes with a, a, a hatred that's just vile. It comes with intimidation. It comes with fear-mongering. It comes with no patience for even a shred of counter-belief. But friends, here is the reality. When the enemies of the gospel of Christ instill fear tactics and we remain unmoved, it drives the enemies of the cross crazy. Why? Well, they realize that they have no ability to control us because we have a love that's greater than ourselves. We have a love that's greater than our life. And what Paul says in verse 28 is that when we are fearless, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction. But our salvation. I think what Paul's saying is that standing firm in the midst of frightening situations because of the gospel, it echoes, it echoes to the enemies of Jesus that they have no power at all, and it confirms that our salvation is real. One commentator put it like this, it is not possible for a Christian to stand firm under persecution and for the world to dismiss it as nothing. It is evidence of a supernatural power. Here's a good question. A friend of mine asked me this many years ago. He said, when facing a situation like that, or really, honestly, it's a good question to ask in any sort of situation, but how can I respond in this situation in a way that shows that the spirit of God is alive in my life? How can I respond in this marriage conflict 
How can I respond in my work conflict? How can I respond parenting my kids? How can I respond in spreading the gospel? How can I respond when I sense the Spirit of God is kind of kind of moving in me to go talk to my neighbor about things that I don't really want to talk to him about? Like, how can I respond in these situations that shows that the Spirit of God is alive and present in my life? I think that there's ways for the Spirit, I'm sorry, for the Christian to respond during persecution that's different than an unbeliever. We remain steadfast and firm, and it is an evidence that God has been working. Now, in verse 29, we see the why. For, here's the why. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We're fearful, I'm sorry, we're not fearful of enemies because we know that the persecution is coming and the persecution that comes is something that has been granted to us. Well, isn't that a curious term for Paul to use? To say something is granted, it literally means this is a gift. Now, my son and I, I know we're driving over here this morning, we were talking about this. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. We're like, oh, gift, yes. Belief is a gift. I accept that, I love that, I want that. Oh, and the gift also applies to the suffering. Never mind. That's not how I understand, like, I don't know about you, but like I read that and I'm sitting there going, hmm, that's not normally what I think of when I think of suffering for the cause of Christ. Gift. Congratulations. Here you go. (laughs) As I studied this last week, I want to be more like the early church. Uh, Do you remember in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles, the, like the early church is beginning to really grow and we see the apostles in Acts chapter five, they get arrested and uh, they are put in prison and overnight remember that the, an angel of the Lord comes and unleashes, like unlocks them and unlocks the gates and they get out. The next morning they go and, and the angel says, you need to go back to the temple tomorrow morning and preach the gospel and talk about Jesus, right? And uh, so the next morning they wake up and the guards are like, well, everything's all locked up. I don't understand what's going on, but the prisoners are gone. So they go find the prisoners, these apostles. They're in the temple preaching about Jesus again. And the religious leaders bring them back and like, didn't we tell you? And it's a whole class where, where Peter says, hey, we must obey God rather than men, right? In Acts chapter five. And they bring them back in and for questioning and it says eventually they beat them and charge them never to speak in the name of Jesus again. And Acts chapter five verse 41 says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Can I be honest? I have zero idea what that means for me. I want, I want to. I want, I want to live that. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. It kind of sounds similar to only let your manner of life be worthy 
of the gospel of Christ. We're fearless because suffering to us is a gift from God to affirm our salvation and to further proclaim the name of Christ among those who don't know. Um, I have a dear friend, his name is Eugene. He is a, a pastor in Russia. He's from Novosibirsk, Russia. Uh, think Siberia, think like far out there, right? Uh, he grew up there because his father and his grandfather were pastors and they were banished, they were banned, they were, they were sent off to Siberia for preaching the name of Jesus because of their faith. Eugene and I first met in 1999. He, is, he was a youth, regional youth pastor at the time. I was in Russia doing some ministry stuff. We kind of developed a good, healthy relationship. We've been friends for the last 23 years now. We get to talk all the time, and whenever he's in the country, we get to spend some time. I was, I was blown away that he was able to get out of Russia to come to, together for, for, for the gospel. Met up with him, talked to him. He told me this. He said, in order to see the spiritual awakening in our country, he was talking about Russia, but let me just say, I think this is here too. In order to see a spiritual awakening in our country, we need to have a big God theology. We need to have good local churches and we need to have Christians who are ready to suffer. You want spiritual awakening? Like my friend who is living this? I say this is true for us as well. As followers of Jesus, our life should reflect the gospel we believe. At least in this passage, I think it happens when we pursue unity in the gospel and we're fearless with the gospel. Now, let me end with this. Um, I mentioned earlier I spent all day Thursday and Friday in interviews with some uh, believers of the underground church and one of the most unreached people groups in the world. They've been removed from their country, and our team is pursuing bringing 11 families, 11 family units to the U.S. to serve with some of our missionaries in the United States reaching this particular people group here. Now, the tagline of every ethne is uh, crossing cultures without crossing borders. Like we, God has amazingly brought the world here. And in this country, we have no chance right now to go serve in that country. But God is bringing thousands and thousands and thousands of them, tens of thousands of them, to our country. And so we're in discussions with these um, People, we spent the last round of interviews all day, Thursday and Friday. It was just a joy. We did these interviews. There were so many tears shed, hearing their story, hearing how the gospel has changed them. One thing, a lot of things became clear, but one thing that stood above all is that when these people learned about Jesus and embraced Jesus and understood the gospel, their lives changed radically amid severe persecution persecution that we have no concept of. Uh, let me just share one story, trying to keep it as general as I can because we don't really talk about this on a public forum, but one man, very common Muslim name, he's married, five kids. He, he was about, uh, him and his wife and his five kids lived with his parents and he was about to take a second wife to start another family because that's what they do in their culture. Uh, the more kids you have, the more followers of Islam you can make. The more rewards you get in heaven and this sort of thing. 
Um, through some interesting situations, he hears about Jesus. He gives his life to Jesus. He believes in Jesus and embraces the gospel. And things begin to change. One of the first things that he does is he decides not to take his second wife. So his wife is like, what in the world? Like, why are you doing this? Why all of a sudden are you, <laughs> like you're loving me now. You actually care for me. So he begins to share the gospel with his wife. Here's why. Because I've embraced Jesus. It breaks her. She gives her life to Christ. They're living with his parents at times. Their parents find out that they're both Christians now. They're, they're infidels, you could say. They kick him out of the house. and They begin to go on the run. They have no place for them to and their five young kids. Don't you just think about like, it's one thing to suffer persecution for me, but like my five kids are on the run with me. They end up severely persecuted, threatened, a man, a wife, five kids. We're talking to this dear family. His wife says, um, I've given him a new name. I'm like, what do you mean? She says, I now call him Rahim. It means mercy. He's no longer dominant. He's no longer hard as a husband and a father. He is merciful to us just like his Savior. Jacob to Israel, Saul to Paul, Muhammad to Rahim. That's what the gospel does. To be known by that is a life worthy of the gospel. Let me pray. Father, we, we praise you for your, your truth that infiltrates our life and changes us from the inside out. Lord, I, I just pray that you help us live lives that are worthy of the, the gospel. Whether we're present, whether we're by ourselves, help us to seek unity, to walk with each other for the gospel. Help us to be fearless with the gospel. Lord, all to your glory and for our good, we pray these things. In Christ's name, amen.